Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you here for Political Rewind. Hope everybody had a terrific weekend. God, it was actually cooler for a good part of this weekend, which was so wonderful. So I hope you all had a terrific time. And now we're back to work with a lot of politics. Even though this is the week before Labor Day, there is still a lot happening in the political world, obviously in Washington, but also here in Georgia as well. Joining me, as he usually does on Wednesdays, is AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein. But you agreed to come in today because Galloway's down in Savannah. I think he was talking to the Savannah... Rotary. Rotary. I did. I talked to them once. Good group. Tough crowd. Yeah. Uh, but it already feels like Wednesday, so my whole week is going to be off. <laughs> uh, Greg Bluestein, big, big uh, sports fan. You're not considering following in the footsteps of Andrew Luck and taking an early <laughs> retirement from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No, but I haven't been beaten up as much as he has over the last couple of years. <laughs> really? I would figure the way you report that you've got candidates and, and parties coming after you and beating you well, up all least, the time. At least physically. <laughs> all right. I'm glad you're here, uh, Greg. If you're watching us on Facebook Live, which I know many of you do, sitting right across from Greg is a first-time panelist on the show, State Representative uh, Bob Trammell, who is the minority leader in the State House. Thank you for coming in. We're glad to have you here. Bill, glad to be here. Thanks for having me today. Luthersville. Did you grow up in Luthersville? I, I did. I, I spent time in the big town of Luthersville, population about 800, and the big town of Roberta. <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> Locate uh, Luthersville on the map for people who aren't familiar with it. You're noonan-ish. So if you're right? traveling down 85 from Atlanta on the way to uh, LaGrange, it's uh, about 13 minutes south of south of noonan. Okay. Okay. Good. That helps us a lot. You, you are a member of uh, the government affairs committee, you're on ways and means, you're on rules, so you've got some power, even though you're a Democrat in a Republican-controlled house, yeah? On a lot of committees, I don't know how much power the Democrats have on the rules committee out like, there. I guess that's really true. You have a say, though. He's got, you've a got, say. That's right. You've got a voice that, that at least you get to be heard a little bit over there. Um, and Heath Garrett is sitting next to you, a Republican strategist who is getting pretty busy. Election season is upon you in a big way, Heath. It's already here. It's you, The last time you were on, which was last week, we, we talked about that. It's never ending now. It's not like you wait until after Labor Day and suddenly say, oh, man, I guess I can, you know, cruise until then, and then the campaigns will start. Absolutely. Candidates who are starting after Labor Day this year, which is an off year, are already behind. Yeah, yeah. Um, And joining us by phone from Athens, I'm really glad she was able to uh, be on this show because there are some topics I'm looking forward to hearing her perspective on, is... uh, Audrey Haynes, Dr. Audrey Haynes, political science professor at the University of Georgia. Audrey, you agreed to do the show kind of at the last minute because we really wanted to hear your thoughts on some of the topics. Even though you've moved, you're starting the semester, you've had to move student meetings around to be with us. You're our hero today, Audrey. Well, thank you. And as I, I told you, um, I love being on the show because whenever I'm on the show, I learn so much from the panelists and I meet so many great people. Oh. Um, and in fact, Michael Thurman was just here at the University of Georgia last week, one of your uh, panelists that you have on the show all the time, and he wowed the students. I bet he did. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to promote uh, to later in the week. Mike Thurman and Sam Olins will be uh, panelists on the show on Friday. So thank you for that opportunity, Audrey. I didn't know you were mm-hmm. going to say that. All right, let's get started. Uh, Greg Bluestein on... Uh, what, Saturday? The mm-hmm. state Republicans uh, were down. They're having a lot of, of uh, events around the state these days, the Republicans. Well, a lot of these are like. annual events, too, they're, but they're just big events that attract big crowds and big names. They were in Perry. The mm-hmm. governor was there. Uh, uh, Purdue uh, was there. David Purdue, Senator mm-hmm. David Purdue was there and others. And the headline that you, uh, uh, to your story on that today, is um, basically that Republicans in the state 
are trying to be more optimistic about the economy and the outlook than may than many other people are right now. Yeah, and look, there are there are gloomy forecasts um, in, in the making. There are concerns about trade war and tariffs, and obviously. Um, Governor Kemp is concerned enough to order those those budget cuts that he did a few weeks ago, four percent this fiscal year, six percent next fiscal year. And he was he was frank about it um, last week at, a, at an event where he said, "Look, I don't think I'm going to have the same fortune that Governor Nathan Deal had in terms of the economy." Um, so there there's there's a optimistic tone, but there's definitely the the the, the kind of economic clouds are gathering. Um, and against that backdrop, though, you've got Republicans who are pushing a relentlessly optimistic message because they can't win in November next year without one. Yeah, part of what you're reporting is not just looking at the state's economy, but they're also uh, helping President Trump with his message of saying the economy nationally are, is, is in good shape. There's no reason to worry about a recession. And I think you report that what, there's an event today in Peachtree Corners that showcases how President Trump's economy is continuing to work for Georgia's Asian-American business Yeah, this was a round table in Peachtree Corners a couple hours ago um, with Governor Kemp and eight Asian-American business leaders who all lavished praise on on President Trump and Governor Kemp, but they did have concerns that they voiced about uh, several of the business leaders about um, the trade wars and what, uh, what impact that would have in maintaining Georgia's good economic times. And Kemp's message to them was, trust the president. So, um, Bob, let me get you in here on this part of it. It, There's something that feels a little bit like what we've heard from the president recently. The president has been saying the economy is in great shape, maybe payroll tax cuts. He's been giving these mixed signals. And it, it feels to some extent we're seeing the same thing here in Georgia, where on one hand, the governor says economics, are we're doing great. We have no problems, but we're going to cut the budget basically 10 percent over the next really year plus. It, mixed message? Well, I think it's definitely a mixed message. But, I, you know, when you have something like a phenomena that uh, an inverted yield curve, which happened for the third time last week, uh, it's definitely a sign that there is something unhealthy in the economy. Um, but, you know, sort of shifting to the, the question about uh, the president and the, and the trade war, you know, they call them, they, they, it's no accident that they call it a war, because in war you have casualties. And one of the main casualties of the Trump trade war with China and the tariffs is Georgia agriculture. And the Trump presidency has been more devastating and destructive to the American farmer than anything since the boll weevil. And, um, you know, so he's literally killing their markets. And I think that's part of the reason that you see this move to go around and try to reassure and assuage. Uh, But the reality is, if if you talk to farmers, um, they're hurting as a result in bearing a disproportionate brunt of this trade war. Well, we're going to I want to get into that a little bit more, especially as it relates to the uh, poultry industry in North Georgia. But before we move to that, Audrey, I'm, I'm curious your take on this. My suggestion that there seems to be a mixed message here, by the way. I should say, if we're going to talk about budget cuts, state agencies, GPB is getting is asked to take these cuts or told to take these cuts, as well as all the other agencies. I will say our programming is paid for by donations from all of you out there. But infrastructure and bigger issues like that do uh, come from state budgeting. But, Audrey, is there a mixed message here? Governor says everything's fine. Oh, we need 10 percent budget cuts in the next year. Well, you know, and I think that is something that is sort of reflective of uh, Governor Kemp and the type of governor he hopes to be. And, and that is somebody who, um, you know, he has his role as uh, the, the head of the Republican Party in the state by being a governor from the Republican Party. But he also has a huge responsibility to the state, and I think he takes that very seriously. It would be irresponsible not to anticipate with all the indications that are being discussed right now about the economy to have a plan. And I think he gets that from sort of the conservative wing of the party. We need to have a plan. Even though we we hope things are going well, if you're not proactive and if you don't plan, you're not going to do a good job for the state. Is the university system uh, part of this uh, budget cutting as far as you know? I assume it is. 
Well, you know, um, I will tell you that I've been so engrossed in the first two weeks in class <laughs> that I haven't read any of the okay. emails or memos. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, Heath. I, uh, I did ask that question, Bill, yeah. and uh, the university system is being asked okay. to do the same yeah. thing that yeah. all other agencies are. <laughs> right. And I look, I think it's an interesting timing. I don't think that Governor Kemp uh, r- rolled out the 4% reduction um, because of a fear of a recession. I think the timing of the national discussion about a recession kind of overlapped with a campaign promise that he made. I mean, he ran as a fiscal conservative. He r- ran on the fact that he was going to try to squeeze and reduce the size of bureaucracy in the state of Georgia and then use that money to prioritize uh, for other things. And I think that he he, he goes around, and, and Greg knows this, talking about how he had to do that as Secretary of State. He talks about how much he reduced. Some of that was forced by a governor. Uh, and he, I think he also did a little bit more and beyond that and gave back more and liked to go around the state talking about that when he ran. And so I think these two things, are. there may be some perceived mixed messaging, but I think it's not uh, because of intent. I think it's because in the last two or three weeks, if you think about it, we went from everybody talking about having the best economy in the world to a lot of flare-up with the trade war with China and a lot of discussion about recession because of some of these indices. Um, I happen to think a little bit that's overblown, right? The economy's still really well. We had great reports in the last quarter of economic growth. All of our major companies are doing really well with profitability. Employment's at an all-time high. So I do think that, that we as Republicans probably have to do a little bit better job of making sure that we focus on on the core economics. And yes, there is a trade war, but what I like about what uh, President Trump has done is he acknowledges who the casualties are, and he's willing to put his money uh, where his mouth is and say, we're going to help the, the folks in agriculture. And I Bob, think that's a big difference. Sorry, Heath. Bob, jump back. So in. I want to just say, you know, when it comes to mixed messages, uh, we're going to have a lot of mixed messaging from the governor uh, in the in the session coming up, because on the one hand, he's asked for these reductions, these budget cuts, And on the other, they're going to tee up the second phase of a cut in the state income tax and ask ask the legislature to approve that. And, you know, if if you're in the position where you need these cuts, it's not really the time that we need to be taking a second step and reducing that state income tax further. Okay, so how much of that state income tax relates to, is that, is that, how much of it will businesses uh, 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 see and how much, I mean, individuals, obviously. But I assume, Greg, that the argument in response to that is, well, when you start cutting people's taxes, they have more money to put back into their businesses. They, they increase their revenues. They can hire more people. I mean, that is an argument, right? Yes, yeah, it's, it's I guess it's the trickle-down theory. And the other the other part of this is, and of course, you know, we haven't heard Governor Kemp say that, but, but people close to him say that if, if we do have a recession, if we do, if the economy starts to contract, um, then if we start, if, if the state is cutting 10% of its budget over the next two years, it'll make it a lot easier in that third year to cut five or eight percent yeah. more rather than 25 percent more um like you know bigger cuts we saw back in the great recession so, so let me ask well while you've got the ball let me ask you um we know that speaker ralston responded to the governor's request or or demands for mm-hmm. these budget cuts pretty quickly said we're not even going to wait till the session begins as we typically do to hold our budget hearings where heads of agencies have to come in and make their case uh before uh, uh the committees at the at the legislature um, so Ralston's taking it very seriously. Does that mean we expect that Republican leaders in the House and Senate are completely on board with the governor in terms of these tax cuts? Or is there some sense that perhaps uh, we don't need uh, cuts that are so significant, possibly because of this thing that Tr- Bob Trammell's talking about? You know, after all, we're looking for an income tax cut. Um, everything is rosy in the economy. What do you sense I, is going to happen there? I would say they're not completely on board in general, because these these are these are Republican leaders who have long said that that they, they they've long gone with Governor Deal in trying to bolster the rainy day fund, which is now over two, well over two billion dollars, and so I think there's some internal Democrats are certainly raising this point, but I think Republicans internally are some too, saying, what's the rainy day fund for if we're not dipping into it to help uh, smooth over some of these these, these cuts that we have to make? Um, at the same time. When Speaker Ralston set up that committee, he also very pointedly said it would also look for new ways to raise revenue, too. Mm-hmm. What that means will be a big part of next year's session as well. Yeah. Um, Audrey, what's always interesting here 
is when we begin to learn as agency heads do go in and, and present their budgets and their reductions, how much all of us as citizens of Georgia, as residents of Georgia, might uh, be affected by these cuts, right? I mean, isn't that always the bottom line, Audrey? Well, you know, those constituents out there are going to be communicating uh, how they feel about uh, those potential cuts, all those different sectors that may be affected by them. And um, I was also going to mention, too, that um, Governor Kemp has to finish paying off that promise to his teachers. And just right. sustaining that uh, right. that raise is going to be expensive. So, you know, that's a part of his calculus as well. Heath? I, I think that he's, and I'm, you know, making the argument for Governor Kemp, I, I think that these things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, lowering taxes at a time if the economy is headed for a rocky patch can actually be a stimulus for the economy at just the right amount of time, right? Uh, spending is uh, two-thirds of our economy today. And if you give private sector businesses create jobs, if you're giving most of these people that are paying individual income taxes or small business owners, that gives them the opportunity to employ more. So I think he could actually make the argument it's the perfect time to be trying to squeeze out waste, fraud, and abuse out of the bureaucracies of state government and give a little bit of that back to the people while funding these other priorities, which are teacher pay raises, making sure we're fully funding the Hope Scholarship. And we've also got some health care uh, liabilities that are coming down the pipeline that he's going to have to look at. And so it's really a good time for him to try to wring out that uh, uh, the kind of waste uh, and abuse within state okay. government, which always exists. All right, let's uh, move on. Bob Hamill. Bob Hamill. Bob Trammell, you already uh, mentioned it uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, the China trade wars. We're now getting word from uh, Sonny Perdue's USDA that uh, this next round of, of uh, funds that are going to be released for farmers to help them as they deal, not just with the natural disasters that certainly Georgia farmers faced with Hurricane Michael, but also uh, because of the president's trade wars. And we're beginning to hear, though we don't know definitively, that this next round could be a big uh, bonus for poultry industry uh, people up in North Georgia, Gainesville area. There's going to be like $600 million, I think, released um, because the poultry industry has really been hit hard, uh, Bob, by the trade war with China. Yeah. Well, you know, I I don't think we know the specifics of right, where the money don't. is going to come exactly and, right. and where it's going to go. But right. but let me just talk a second about uh, the impact of this trade war, particularly on the on the poultry industry. I mean, they're they're locked out basically of the China says no, we're not going to buy so, your chickens anymore. Um, I, I think anyone in the poultry industry would tell you is what they really want is to be able to participate in the market, which is one of the two largest economies in the world. But you know the Trump the, the Trump's policy um, has has hurt in other ways. If you look at the immigration enforcement uh, policy that the administration has, uh, earlier this month in Mississippi they raided poultry uh, poultry operations and arrested 680 uh, workers right right out of the poultry plants there. And then recently in Hall County, you had a day where literally hundreds of people walked off. Uh, walked out because of of a fear of a similar enforcement yeah. action, and um, so so these policies uh, at, from the administration are harming the poultry industry. And I, and I'd like to just make one other comment about Trump's uh, China policy. You know, this weekend he he sent out a tweet that he ordered American companies yeah. to look for alternatives in China, and in an age where you can't find a Republican candidate unwilling to brand uh, Democrats as socialists. Let's think about that for a moment. The president of the United States ordered private American business to pull out of China. So, okay, so Audrey, here's what's interesting about this this phenomenon. There's no question that Georgia farmers, excuse me, some more than others are being affected by the trade wars that the president is engaged in right now. And yet, Mm -hmm. as has been documented over and over again, uh, rural Georgians seem, at least till today, to be completely uh, loyal to President Trump, Audrey. It's an interesting phenomenon, apparently based on the fact that they are accepting what the White House is telling them, which is two things. We've needed to deal with China for a long time, and everyone agrees with that. And two, President Trump's going to make it better. You are going to hurt, but we've got subsidies for you. It's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it, Audrey? 
Um, it is, and I will tell you that the president himself, he is very, very convinced that any kind of bilateral trade deficit is very harmful, and he's been communicating that since 2016. That was a part of you know, what he was running his campaign on. People didn't hear it as much. He um, actually uh, talks about a documentary he saw that was called Death by China, and the person responsible for that was someone who is advising him right now on uh, trade and tariff policy, Peter Navarro. So um, this is information that uh, that people who um, are knowledgeable uh, know about, and a lot of his uh, constituent support of the farmers, they are very loyal, although... One of the things they know, and one of the things we know from the research, is that tariffs are sticky. You know, once a tariff is set, it is really hard for it to be undone. So there is potential for some long-term harm if the trade war goes on for an extended period of time. And even at that point, uh, we'll we'll likely see farmers um, perhaps uh, communicate with the president. Um, And uh, he's already suggesting um, that he may have some uh, potential regret. Uh, He followed that up very quickly, and so did his uh, press office. But he's been watching the the market, and more and more there's communication that there's problematic. So I would would suggest that we might be able to see some change in the near future because it is getting... Oh, I'm sorry, Professor. Uh, and this morning, the president uh, did send a, a signal that, that he was trying to calm the trade wars, um, at, at least the talk about trade wars, um, because it has been very volatile. And the, and, and the message from state Republicans here in Georgia has been very similar too: a short-term pain, long-term game. Again, President uh, Governor Kemp said today, "I trust the president. I trust Senator Purdue. I trust Secretary per- Purdue." So he's just saying he's urging people who are farmers and others who are concerned about the trade wars to 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 have patience in this but you look at the poultry industry in particular 15 percent of all chickens in the nation are uh, are raised here in georgia it's a 4.4 billion dollar industry so this is not this we're, we're talking major major money uh, and, 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 and huge economic losses if this trade war persists you know heath maybe we should have uh, subtitled today's uh, show Ironies, because here's another moment of irony, it strikes me. Uh, Republicans, of course, we know in 2020 are going to try to stick the socialist label on every Democrat running at every level uh, for office across the United States. And yet it is a Republican administration with Sonny, Sonny Perdue, Secretary of Agriculture, giving away massive amounts of money to support what you might call welfare to help farmers, goodness knows they need help. I, I'm right. not. They're they're not. They have no blame in all this. They're they're suffering, but it is a Republican administration that's putting billions of dollars into subsidies to help keep them going. I think on the surface that's the way it looks, right? But like these things, you scratch a little deeper. Taking Bob's uh, war analogy, right? The one time that we as Republicans would say you should be engaging in this type of subsidizations when you're in the middle of a battle or a war. Uh, and that's exactly what it is with China. It's existential. We believe that fundamentally, right, that that our children and our grandchildren are not going to be able to live in a free society based on a capitalistic society if we don't deal with the existential trade threat that China is, not just to the United States today, but in the longer term. Uh, the president has built up a lot of political capital in rural America with all agribusiness areas, not just poultry, uh, because he's been talking about this for a long time. It's not new. He said he was going to do it. He's doing it. He's stuck to his guns. I do think we're close to an end game here, right? At the end of the day, what happened over the weekend pretty much puts a tariff on everything that China tries to send to the United States of America and everything that we try to send to China. Well, at the end of the day, it's a lot more harmful to them. Now, we're not sitting on the radio in China talking about what it does to farmers in China or to the manufacturers in China because they don't have free radio in China, right, to talk about this. And so we don't get that impact. But the reason why they're back at the table today is because we're reaching the end game. It is much more harmful to them, even in the short term, uh, to be playing this game. The president knows that. And so he does. And what what the farmers are willing to let President Trump do is have a little bit of time and a little bit of effort here to see if he can't negotiate a better deal. Yes, but the president of China has his job, Bob, for life. President Trump faces re-election in about a year from now. I'm not sure that doesn't give the Chinese a little bit of leverage in this game. 
Well, you know, the thing is, is that, I mean, Trump is so erratic when it comes to trade policy. Today, he might say one thing uh, completely contradictory to what he said this weekend. But, you know, all we have to do is look at, a you know, a Georgia product like pecans. Uh, pecans were introduced in, in China. They were wildly popular, uh, was a potential great market. And guess what? After the tariffs, the market totally dried up. And that's a self-inflicted wound. All right, I got to step in because we got to get to our first break of the show. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the legislative battle that's shaping up for control of the Georgia House. And aren't we lucky to have Bob Trammell here to give us the Democratic perspective Perfect timing. on that? Uh, this is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Join us for GPB's gala event in the Fox Theater's Egyptian Ballroom on Saturday night, September 7th. The evening starts with a meet-and-greet cocktail reception with music legend Brenda Lee, followed by a three-course dinner and dancing with live music. We'll celebrate Brenda Lee's accomplishments in the world of entertainment as she's presented with the first GPB Georgia Legend Award. Go to gpb.org slash Brenda Lee to get your tickets before time runs out. As the trade dispute with China drags on, leaders in China aren't sure they can trust the U.S. If we make a deal, can this deal really work? That lots of questions. That story and the latest out of the G7 meeting happening in France this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till seven today on GPB and GPBnews.org. You can also listen on the GPB apps or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Welcome back today. Heath Garrett is with us. Uh, House Minority Leader Bob Trammell is here. Greg Bluestein's in the studio and joining us from her. Uh, luxurious suite of offices in the political science uh, department at the University of Georgia is Dr. Audrey Haynes. Hi, Audrey. You still out there? Of course. <laughs> okay. Um, let's move on. Uh, Bob, You, we are looking at what promises to be, and I don't want to overblow it, a titanic battle for seats in the Georgia House in 2020. Um, Republicans have said they're going to put as much as $10 million and more into trying to maintain control of the House. Your party has said, we're. how much money are they talking about putting in? Uh, I don't Greg? think they put a price tag on it, but they're, they're, yeah. they're allying with, uh, with Stacey Abrams. Yeah, with Abrams and all. Do you really think Democrats are in a realistic position to take control of the House? Or is that a posture you just have to adopt because otherwise you just throw up your hands and say, well, we, we tried but couldn't quite get there. Uh, the, House, uh, the House majority <laughs> is, is, certainly, is certainly within our reach How many in seats 2020. Do you need? So we need 16 That's seats. That's what I thought. We're, we're at 75 seats in a 180 right. seat chamber. Um, when, um, if you look back two years ago, we had 62 seats out of a 180 seat chamber. So the trend lines are favorable and in, in, in trending in our direction. But, you know, uh, setting the money up aside for a second, there's no question that there will be more money spent by both parties in legislative races in 2020 uh, than probably ever in the history of Georgia. But money without message is a, is a complete waste. And what's happening in Georgia is, and the question I think voters are going to be asking is, is Georgia going in the direction that, that we want? And on several key fronts, uh, when it comes to uh, common sense gun safety measures, the General Assembly has complete inaction on that. There are 12 bills uh, pending in the House right now that can't get a hearing in committee. And the only way that they will ever move forward is to elect a new majority. Similarly, with what we saw with House Bill 481, we saw that the rights of women in Georgia aren't safe until we elect a new governing majority in Georgia. These are the type of issues that are going to animate voters, are going to drive voters. Uh, we planned what we saw in 2018 was uh, an increased enthusiasm and interest by candidates, and that's only going to intensify in 2020. So I want to um, start, Greg, Greg, I want to get you in, and then I want to get your take on this, uh, Audrey and Heath. But so you know the map, the legislative map, in a way that I absolutely don't. Um, are, are they going to win? Is is the effort to take back mostly suburban se seats? Um, because 
if you're not going to win the gun argument that Bob's trying to make with rural Georgia voters, clearly, I mean, there's a problem there. Isn't there a split that um, if you're looking to try to gain rural seats, that's not the best argument? It might work in the suburbs. What, what's the uh, map look like? Well, of the, the map state? of the most vulnerable seats are mostly in the suburbs, but there's yeah. also a few rural to small city type seats. Like seat his. Districts. Like well, Bob's. His is competitive <laughs> for Republicans. But, right. Because right. um, Trump won your dis- his district. But on the other hand, there's there's, there's a handful of rural districts that Hillary Clinton won and that Stacey Abrams won that will be main targets. Um, I'm thinking of a few right off the top of my head. Um, and then, of course, there, there's, there's Metro Atlanta. There's, a, there's, 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 a, um, there's still one Republican who, who represents an ITP district in the state house. She'll be targeted. There's a handful. Inside of, the perimeter. Inside the perimeter, Thank I should you. say. Uh, and there's a bunch in the close-in suburbs and maybe some exurban um, Republicans, too, are going to be on the hot seat. Uh, and really, in 2018, for the first time in a long time, we saw a lot of these Republicans face credible challengers yeah, yeah. With, with, with some money. And in 2020, we're going to see that trend accelerate. And when you have credible challengers, you saw a bunch of seats flip, also with Stacey Abrams at the top of that ballot. So, Audrey, um, in it, when I asked Bob the first question, he anticipated what my second one was going to be. He immediately gave us two issues that he thinks Democrats are going to be able to do well on gun safety and uh, 481, the bill that virtually outlaws abortion in Georgia. Um, Give us your take on those issues as premier issues in this race. Well, uh, you anticipated what I might want to say here, Bill, because, you know, (laughs) um, guns and abortion, you know, those are both for both sides going to be issues that bring out your base. It is going to get people uh, energized because they have real strong feelings and concerns about those issues. But I will tell you, there is a recent uh, bit of work done and the Wall Street Journal reported on it about what people really care about. Now, the base is going to turn out for that, but there are a lot of other people outside of that base, and they are weaker partisans, and they are independents, even in this polarized environment, and they care about those kitchen table issues. So if you're a party and you're only talking about those, you might not do as well. You need to talk about things like health care and how you're paying your bills and, and infrastructure and all those other issues that people confront on a day-by-day basis. So go ahead, finish that. I didn't mean to well, interrupt you. I was going to say, if you, don't, if you don't talk about those, you may not actually win any new voters to your side because if it's only about partisanship, you know, and that's really how those two issues end up dividing people in terms of their two teams and their, and and they are important issues. But you also have to have something um, related to the everyday problems that people need to have solved by their government working together. So Heath, I'm um, interested in 481 as an example of a of a big issue to drive voters to the polls. I get that Republicans say the anti-abortion voter is going to turn out uh, to uh, thank us for for passing this legislation. And, of course, the uh, the Democrats are counting on people turning out uh, for the other side of that. Um, I also know that there are going to be organizations on both sides of that issue that will pump a lot of energy into turning out the voters. But, look, you're a political consultant. Doesn't anger drive people to the polls a lot more frequently than happiness with something that a legislator has done? Doesn't that argue more? Isn't the energy with the forces out there that are really angry about 481? I think that you're right in most election cycles. However, what's unique about 2020 is that I don't think it's going to require just anger in order to get people to the polls, number one. And number two, what the professor just talked about is critically important and why I think we as Republicans have a good chance to take back a few seats in the suburbs and defend with a red wall a lot of the ones that we're being attacked on this year. A, we have candidates with the right messages on these issues. But here's why, Bill. I think that the Stacey Abrams over performed Hillary Clinton Mm -hmm. in an off year. The Democratic upside is marginal at best. They can't turn out many more voters than they turned out. It was a historic high, and the anger level was off the charts for Democrats in the last cycle. We as Republicans have to admit we were caught a little flat-footed by that. We didn't have the ground game out there. We didn't have the candidates with the messaging in the right place. We underperformed the Trump turnout. So if you give us the Trump bump, right, which is going to come because everybody's coming to vote in the 
presidential election, then what Professor Haynes talked about is very important. The, the independent swing voter, uh, abortion and guns are not top five, may not even be top ten on their minds. Job security, pay, uh, health care, affordable, real affordable health care with choices. Those are the types of issues. Infrastructure, uh, what's your commute like in the northern suburbs uh, of Atlanta, Georgia. And there are good messages from good Republican candidates that I think are going to create a uniquely competitive environment that will allow us to win back a few and defend ones that other people are already giving to the Democrats, I think, prematurely. Well, well may I chime in here? And I'm sorry to jump in on the phone. I do think that one issue that, um, you know, uh, if I were on the advising anyone on the Republican side, too, depending on where they are, there is that um, that critical role of women uh, just from talking to students um, here and doing some focus groups. I mean, we found that uh, the abortion issue d- does sort of split women and um, the split tends to go uh, more towards the Democratic side. So that issue itself, while it may bring out the base, they may lose a set of people who do turn out to vote who are very energized in this, this last cycle and, and likely the cycle to come. So you know, that that is something that will have to be dealt with, too. I mean, that's not an automatic win to bring in, you know, this this large number of, of women voters. They Bob, may be trending the other way. Bob, let me bring it down to your district. Uh, Bluestein points out that you uh, you're you're an elected representative in a district that was won by President Trump in 2016. How did you do that as a Democrat? What do you say to your voters out there? And we also, there's been a lot of chatter about the fact that there will be some anti-abortion forces trying to find somebody to uh, run against you in the elections next year. How do you, how do you win in a, as a Democrat in a Republican district like that? Well, so to, to talk to the professor's point, you know, one, one thing that uh, we as, as Democrats, particularly Georgia Democrats, have, have stood strong for is Medicaid expansion and making sure that we're out there letting them know that we are the party trying to make sure that people have access to health care in Georgia. And, and that's going to be on the ballot generally with the presidential election. You have a president who is seeking to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. It's under assault in the courts uh, by initiatives from Republican attorneys general. It's a big topic of conversation in the Democratic primary. But when you come back, uh, you know, what people are looking for in a district like mine, which is a swing district, uh, they want to know about uh, that their kids are going to be able to go to good schools, that they're going to have access to good jobs, and that they're going to have access to health care. And so, um, you know, they're going to look for the candidate who is talking about those issues, and that's what we plan to talk about. Do you have to stay away from the hot-button issues like abortion? I mean, obviously you're on the record now as having voted against that bill, which is why you've got a possible opposition coming at you. But in general, do you try to avoid the hot-button issues? You know, I make no secret about where I am on the issues, and I think voters know that. And In fact, I'm one of only three members of the House who literally voted on every single bill that came before the General Assembly. Oh, wow. So my record is out there for, for anyone to see, and I'm you know not, a, not afraid of that record and very proud of it. I am pro-choice and believe in a woman's right to choose. And when it comes to guns, I grew up around guns and is growing up in a rural area, but I also believe that being able to shoot people 26 people in 32 seconds is something that we need to talk about in the General Assembly. I'm interested in, and Heath mentioned the Trump bump, and I'm, I'm interested to see if we actually see a significant Trump bump. Yeah. That'll be one of the big questions for next year. I, I had lunch with a very conservative Republican lawmaker who represents one of the more conservative districts in Georgia uh, that Trump easily won by, you know, by 40, 50 points. Um, he expects his district um, to lose. Um, he, Trump will still win it, but he expects Trump's support to go down at least four or five points next year. Well, I, I'm glad you said that because I'm curious about um, your take on this. Heath. Joe Walsh has now declared he's entering the, the primary again. Right. He'll, he'll run against President Trump as a Republican. Now he's got terrible problems of his own. But um, a former congressman, very conservative, he's made some statements since he became a radio personality that are incredibly offensive. Um, and he's certainly not going to win, and he knows he's not going to win. But I wonder when you open the door that little bit, when you got a Walsh out there, what impact might that have on the Trump bump? It suddenly suggests, gee, maybe there are alternatives to this. Again, Walsh isn't going to (laughs) win. 
And let me make sure I clarify. <laughs> when I talk about the Trump bump, the Trump bump that's coming is that everybody's coming to vote. So uh, lots of voters who did not participate in the 2018 uh, election are coming to vote. They may not necessarily vote for Donald Trump, but they will vote for David Perdue. They will vote down ballot. For example, Johnny Isaacson got 55% of the vote in 2016. Donald Trump got 50% of the vote, right? So there's a Johnny Isaacson type of candidate bump that's out there for people who did not vote for Donald Trump, may have even voted for Hillary Clinton, but voted for a Republican who they thought represented their values. And so I think you'll see Republican candidates getting that kind of a Trump bump. So I don't think your your candidate would have said they're not coming. They might just skip that election. I think that's what Joe Walsh participates in, right? Joe Walsh and William Weld start to chip away at some of Trump's uh, moderate to liberal Republican voters. You know, I like to remind people that five to seven percent of the state of Georgia identify themselves as liberal Republicans. Maybe there's a Rockefeller Republican from New York or whatever, but they're out there. They may skip the vote for the presidency, but as long as they hang in there and vote for a David Perdue and Republican down ballot, then we're going to be better off than we were in 2018. Give you the last word before we got to get to a break, Bob. So I'm going to make some news and share some inside baseball that kept me awake in 2018. Bluestein's already recording. (laughs) So what I worried about in 2018 was um, how do we tie Republican candidates to Trump? Okay. And we didn't have to worry about it. They, they hugged him. They embraced him. They're doing it again in 20. And I would issue this challenge to any candidate on the Republican ballot that's running for a legislative race. Do yourself a favor if you want to distance him and go on record and do it now, because that is a gift for us in 2020. So I'm, say that. Help me understand what you just said, because I'm not quite sure I followed that. So the gift is the big hug and embrace right. of President Trump. Right. And so that's, that's the gift. And so the opportunity is now, like, if you don't want to be part of the group hug, oh, just okay. come out there you publicly and say you better. Gotcha. Okay, so, Greg, he really thinks you're going to see some people defecting from the Republican Party, uh, from Trump, as they look toward 2020. Do you really think that's going to happen? I, mean, I think there will be some Republicans who voted for him in 16 who won't vote for him. In- Voters, in- but, but, you know... I do not elected? think any, any elected officials. And I think the smarter Republicans are going to call balls and strikes. They're not going to go out and give him the 100% bear hug, and they're not going to go give him the stiff arm either. Okay. Right. And I think that's the smarter strategy. You've seen Senator Isaacson, your, your boss, too. I want, I think it's a great thing to. Bluestein will, you know, he's recorded that. Maybe we'll see it in the jolt. Maybe, you know, you'll get some uh, action on that. Uh, All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and we'll come back uh, with more on Political Rewind. Hi, I'm Ross Terrell, GPB's reporter here in Atlanta. But I cover more than the state's largest city. I tell stories about the problems farmers in the southern part of Georgia are facing, and I report on transportation issues affecting the 13 metro Atlanta counties. We believe express lanes is our way to manage the amount of traffic or demand to give those users the reliable trip times that they're looking for. Stick with us to hear these stories and more. GPB News, stand with the facts. On the next Fresh Air, we begin a series of interviews with this year's Emmy Award nominees and two Saturday Night Live alums. Bill Hader stars in HBO's dark comedy Barry as a Marine veteran turned hitman who starts acting classes. And John Mulaney, who wrote for SNL, had his own award-winning comedy special. He's nominated for hosting SNL. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Audrey Haynes out there in Athens, Georgia. I want to start with you on this one. Uh, Pew uh, just released a study, and um, and their studies are usually like gold standard as they look at various issues relating to American political, uh, social, and cultural life. They looked at the flips from majority white to majority minority counties across the United States between the year 2000 and 2018. Their overall conclusion is that 109 counties in 22 states went from majority white to minority majority during those 18 years. Here's what's really interesting. Rockdale County, Georgia, had the biggest swing of all the counties in the United States going from 73% white in 2000 to 30% white in 2018. 
Now, we already know that Gwinnett County, which is the largest county in their uh, uh, 109, they swung to a uh, minority, uh, majority minority uh, in, 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 you know, the recent, recent past. They're up, I think, 63 percent. I'll have to look that up for Sure. But um, Rockdale's a small county, so it's one of the reasons they got the biggest flip up there at the top. But what does this tell you, Audrey, about what's happening certainly to exurban Atlanta? Well, that's a great question. Let me put it in context, too. So, you know, 109 counties, there are over 3,000 counties in the United States of America. So, you know, that that shows you a little bit about the relative flip. But let me let me tell you that um, we've seen this change in um, over half. Now, they haven't flipped to majority-minority, but there has been um, a loss of white population in many counties. Not only counties, but half of the 360 metro areas in the country. In fact, we've seen white population loss in about 15 states. But let me just put it, tell you why. One, we're older. Older people are less mobile. Two, we're older and we're dying. A lot of us are that are white. So um, the other thing is economic, and this is the big thing. Um, so wherever you have employment slowdowns, uh, the more affluent part of the population, which is often white, will um, they will leave. They'll move. So they migrate. There's actually been increases across the country in white growth by county, but it is met by also uh, minority growth in those counties because people are moving to where there is more activity. So, you know, we see it's a really interesting mixed bag that some of those um, areas in counties in Georgia where we see this change, part of it may be because of economic opportunity and people are moving there and a lot of them are minorities. Um, the birth rate is a, is a bit higher. We've seen more um, uh, uh, change in that area and growth over time. And by the way, I would mention these are uh, legal immigrants who have been coming in and living in the country for some time. Um, but you know, it is a mixed bag. We see increases in um, white mobility and white migration in some counties, but there is a loss, and there's loss in areas primarily um, with more stagnant economic uh, uh, activity. So, so, in a nutshell. Greg, one of the things that I found, clearly this has partisan implications that Bob Trammell's happy about if you've got more minority communities controlling, you know, uh, the political structure of a, of a community. But it's also got a vast impact in terms of having an accurate census count next year. It does. Because if you're not able to count the minority communities in these in these areas of the state that are gaining minority populations, your representation of Georgia is, not, is going to be less. Especially minority populations that are already distrustful of the government, yeah. um, whether they be legal immigrants or undocumented immigrants, yeah. immigrants and, and whether or not um, you know the, the ongoing debate about... The qu- questions on the census that seem geared towards intimidation of, of people who are not here in the country illegally. Um, and that's why there's been such an effort from the city of Atlanta and and Democrats to get to get uh, what they call a fair count of the census, because it will control literally, you know, billions, uh, you know, uh, maybe even more trillions of dollars uh, of, of, of the go to local communities next year. Ironies. Again, we have ironies on this show, Bob. Uh, We are told, you know, that uh, it is Republicans uh, who are trying to suppress the the minority communities that respond to the census, especially undocumented immigrants, perhaps, and and maybe uh, legal Hispanics here who are afraid, you know. Um, And yet, in a state, you want to count every head you possibly can so you get the government funds you need to run your state. Well, absolutely. You want an accurate census count and you want to make sure that resources are available for communities to to get the resources uh, where they're needed. And, you know, I I mean, I think this point um, needs to be uh, certainly needs to be made. And the the exciting thing about the the information is that it means that at the uh, the local and the state elected levels, representatives and senators, um, you're going to begin to see increased diversity uh, in the local elected officials, and and that is uh, and that's a good thing uh, because diversity makes us stronger. 
Heath, weigh in on this. I think this is a real opportunity for Republicans, right? Johnny Isaacson got 22% of the African-American vote in 2016, right? So you just because demographics are not destiny for Republicans, unless... Republicans sit back and say, we're just going to continue to rely on maximizing white voter turnout. Well, doesn't President Trump force you into that <laughs> He space? does not force you into that. Well, okay. But, but, but Sorry, so go good ahead. candidates, go ahead. right, don't get forced into that, and that's why people vote locally, and that's why you see this uh, split between you know Trump voters and, um, and Isaacson voters uh, in a state was by four or five points. The Republican Party has great opportunities in the suburbs to make inroads in the Asian community, the Hispanic community, and even the African American American community. Uh, what I think is interesting we don't talk about is that, that, that the, the non-white populations are acting just like white middle class voters and, and families acted in the 70s and 80s. They're moving to the suburbs because they can find affordable housing, good public education, and, and a safe neighborhood. And it turns out that what we like to say all the time is the party of Lincoln is that we're all a lot more similar than we are different. And so everybody wants to break us down into race and ethnicity. But at the end of the day, middle-class African-American families are moving to Cobb County, Gwinnett County, middle-class Korean and Asian and other pan-Asian populations are moving to the suburbs because they can afford to do it because they're first generation middle-class, um, you know, economic situations. And, and it's great for, it's great for the suburbs. It's great for the state of Georgia. And it's a great opportunity for Republicans if we'll take it. You know, uh, Bob, I hear I hear Heath talk, and I know that is his dream of how Republicans will be able to reach out. But again, I say, can you do that in the era of Donald Trump? And can you do that in the era of a Mitch McConnell, Republicans who seem very happy uh, to play to their white base? Well, I think they I think I, I like what Heath did there with Senator Isaacson as, as Senator Isaacson is not a Trump Republican. That's that's basically what I heard Heath say. And, uh, and, don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> Senator but, Isaacson is an Isaacson Republican. <laughs> but but that's the challenge. That's the challenge that the, the, the GOP right. has. It's also the challenge you're uh, sending out to people out there. Uh, Greg, this map, these you know what it, it, what Heath is saying it is if you were, you could take that to the uh, off year meeting of the Republican National Committee and try to get that message out and I think half the room would walk out on you right now. I don't know about that, but it's it's been a perennial struggle for Republicans. Governor Nathan Deal in fourteen, his goal was to get double digit African American supporters, and he he got just around that. He got ten percent or so, and 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 they were so proud of that. Um, but long term, when you have Cobb County being the next major Georgia county that's going to be uh, majority yeah. minority, and not, not, not in just a few years, um, long term Republicans can't survive without making significant inroads to to other non white populations. The uh, the uh, uh, non white. Uh, uh, percentage of, uh, of uh, people in Gwinnett is now 67%. It's a 36% swing in those uh, 18 years. Tom Faust just sent me that. We are out of time for today's show. Um, Audrey Haynes, thank you so much for rearranging your meetings with your students to be on today. We loved having you. Greg Bluestein, Bob Trammell, Heath Garrett. Heath, let me give a quick sh- something we have not mentioned on the show. And as long as you're here, it's because it's your client, Chris Carr, the attorney general of Georgia. Um, the courts gave ruled in favor of a measure that he, I think there were 10 attorneys general who brought this suit to overturn President Obama's uh, Waterways of America Act, which demanded cleaner streams, rivers, whatever, feeding into larger bodies of water. Farmers in Georgia are ecstatic about that, I know. Uh, there are a lot of Democrats and environmentalists who think it's awful, but it was your guy, Chris Carr, who basically led that effort. So for better or worse, we give him a shout out today. Big victory. <laughs> okay. Big victory. Thank you all for uh, being with us today for Political Rewind. It's been a really interesting show. Bob, thank you for making your first appearance. Come on oh, back. Listen, thank you. Look forward to it. We will be back uh, tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Looking forward to seeing you all here with us then for another Political Rewind.